Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Why is it that emergency doctors spend so little time talking about the things we so often see? One of the most popular EM Cases podcasts ever is the one we did with Andrew Morris, one of our distinguished guests today, on UTI myths and misperceptions. Like UTI, skin and soft tissue infections are a dime a dozen. And like UTI, they're misdiagnosed way more than we'd like to think. In fact, cellulitis was misdiagnosed in the latest JAMA study 34% of the time. Plus, with both UTI and skin and soft tissue infections, we sometimes don't choose antibiotics very wisely. Misdiagnosing UTI can sometimes be a pretty big deal, usually not catastrophic. Misdiagnosing a soft tissue infection can also sometimes be a pretty big deal, even catastrophic if you miss neck fash, for example. So with the goal of sharpening your diagnostic skills when it comes to skin and soft tissue infections, there are lots of cellulitis mimics out there that we're going to talk about, and choosing wisely when it comes to treatment, we'll be discussing best practices for management of cellulitis and skin abscesses, when to cover for MRSA, how to pick up neck fash before it's too late, and a lot more. And to help us along, it's my pleasure and honor to have back on the show Dr. Melanie Bamel, EM doc from Sunnybrook Hospital, you might remember from our episodes on hyper-K and hyponatremia and Dr. Andrew Morris, Infectious Disease Doc and Medical Director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. Welcome, Andrew, and welcome, Mel. Happy to be here. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump right into the first case. A 55-year-old man with a history of diabetes comes in with one week of progressive, painful red rash on his right calf after returning from Jamaica. He has no systemic symptoms. On exam, his vitals are normal. The rash is pinkish red, about five by seven centimeters in size with ill-defined borders and is tender on palpation. His calf is a bit swollen, but you can't palpate any mass. So let's just kind of go back and forth quickly. What else do you want to know on the history and physical with this patient? Dr. Bamel? I want to know if he sustained any trauma while he was in Jamaica. Uh, for example, if he did any water sports uh, that might explain the redness. Uh, that would make me think of certain bugs like Vibrio and uh, Aeromonas. For somebody who's had symptoms for about a week, I'd really be interested in knowing whether he's received any treatment and what kind of treatment. I'm also interested, like Melanie was, in what kind of exposure he had. Uh, people vacationing sometimes get this phytodermatosis from lime juice or lemon juice that gets spilled on their legs and then they, the skin reacts with the sun. So things like that I'd be definitely interested in. Of course, understanding his stability, the course of the illness, prior history of infections. And I'd certainly be interested in knowing overall what the nature of his diabetes is, what complications he's had, whether he has neuropathy, if there's any chronic skin breakdown, if this is associated with a chronic diabetic foot, or if this is a more straightforward case. Those are some great details there. We think cellulitis is simple, but not so simple as we'll, we'll continue to find out in the podcast. You know, most of the time, cellulitis seems easy to diagnose, 
But I was actually amazed to learn, as I said at the top of the podcast, that the misdiagnosis rate is as high as 34%. Before we get into cellulitis mimics, Dr. Bamel, why is there a growing problem of what I like to call pseudocellulitis? Well, there are a few reasons. First, the common symptoms that were taught in medical school, uh, rubor, dolor, kohler, tumor, redness, pain, warmth, and swelling, are nonspecific markers of inflammation. Fever, streaking lymphangitis, regional lymphadenopathy are more helpful markers of infection, but are not always present. Second, there are no lab values and imaging studies uh, to confirm your clinical diagnosis. And thirdly, and most importantly, there's a lot of diagnostic momentum when it comes to this diagnosis. We're often seeing patients that have already been diagnosed as having cellulitis by their primary care providers or our emergency colleagues. So my advice is to think twice, take a step back. If it's itchy, if it's bilateral, if it's non-improving with antibiotics, or it's in a risky location, like the inner thigh, over a joint, or in the genital area. So with the specificity of classic findings being low and the fact that we don't always see the more specific signs like the streaking lymphangitis you mentioned and the regional lymphadenopathy, the diagnosis isn't always so clear and there are quite a few cellulitis mimics that can trick us. So what are some of the cellulitis mimics that we should be on the lookout for and always consider before we just jump straight to the diagnosis of of cellulitis and how should we be distinguishing these mimics clinically? Let's just, again, take turns. Dr. Bamel, what would be the most common cellulitis mimic? So the most common cellulitis mimic is stasis dermatitis, uh, which essentially usually presents with bilateral leg edema and erythematous plaques, particularly in the gator region, which is the area just above the medial mouth, on a background of brownish hemosiderin deposition. There may also be some eczematous skin findings like superficial desquamation and weeping of fluid. There's also a close relative to venous stasis that's pretty common, lipodermatosclerosis, uh, which is a form of sclerosing paniculitis, which literally means hardening of inflamed fat. And these patients also present with uh, swelling, pain, and redness uh, just above the medial mal, and it can spread to the pretibial areas. They're treated like stasis dermatitis with compression therapy and elevation, and typically the Uh, inflammation settles over time and the fat dies and the dermis becomes hard and fibrotic and that's what tapers the lower leg below the calf and gives it that shape of an inverted champagne bottle. All right. So those being very common mimics of cellulitis, how, how do you tell the difference? I mean, I've, I know I've been tricked a bunch of times where someone who comes in and they have kind of chronic skin changes and now they seem much worse. I think, well, this could be venous stasis, but you're not sure, and it's really quite red and tender and swollen. How do you tell the difference between cellulitis and stasis dermatitis? So a nice trick I learned from actually from an internal medicine resident was to raise the leg above the level of the heart for one to two minutes. And typically with inflammatory conditions like stasis, uh, the redness will dissipate, whereas with cellulitis, the majority of the redness will persist upon elevation. Great pearl. So if it's vascular, do a passive red leg raise for a couple of minutes and that'll disappear. If it's cellulitis, that won't disappear. And something I think that goes along with what Melanie just said in terms of including the differential where that red glazing is really helpful is peripheral arterial disease. It's amazing how many people who are diabetic have both peripheral arterial disease, leaving them with red feet, especially on dependency, rubor on dependency. But on top of that, if they have an accompanying painful neuropathy, 
as this progresses, they may present with complaints. They may mimic a cellulitis. And I've seen this on several occasions. In fact, the classic presentation is somebody who's had this progressive redness and pain in their legs. They get admitted to hospital where they're supine for most of their stay. So the pains and the, in particular, the redness goes away. And then as soon as they start walking again, the redness comes back and they end up having almost like a revolving door pattern of coming back and forth from the hospital with relief from bed rest. Those are some great pearls about how to distinguish some of the more common mimics. The next mimic I want to talk about was, was DVT and thrombophlebitis. You know, Emergency doctors are trained to think of the worst diagnoses first. However, that doesn't mean we should be looking at anyone with a red calf and saying, oh, we have to rule out a DVT. This patient needs an ultrasound now. What are some of the the distinguishing features between DVT or thrombophlebitis and cellulitis? Some of the things that may be helpful are predisposing conditions. So, you know, if you're somebody who fulfills the Wells criteria. So I think that's a useful thing to uh, to consider is looking at the Wells criteria for deep vein thrombosis. That may help lead you one way or the other. Cellulitis, by and large, is hotter proximally. And on top of that, if you're lucky, you may see some of the accompanying features like the lymphangitis, or if it's a lower leg cellulitis, you may have inguinal lymphadenopathy. I think it's also important to recognize that DVT and cellulitis rarely coexist. There's a small study that was done out of New Zealand that showed only about 1% of people who were diagnosed with cellulitis actually had a proven DVT along with it. So even though people often suspect it, even when there's a diagnosis of cellulitis, people often go for an ultrasound as well just to rule out uh, an accompanying DVT, but that's exceedingly uncommon. Yeah, I would just say um, that if you see redness in the inner thigh, you want to think about SVT because that is where the greater saphenous vein runs and you won't always necessarily feel a palpable cord. I think it's a good idea to get an ultrasound on most SVTs uh, because you'd be surprised at how often these seemingly innocent superficial clots uh, end up coming dangerously close to entering the deep system. The treatment uh, is anticoagulation if it ends up being only a few centimeters away from the saphenofemoral or the saphenopopliteal junction, as well as if it's a segment more than five centimeters. All right. So as we go through our mimics here, some other mimics that come to mind are uh, septic arthritis and gout. Just to go over the basics here again, how do you tell the difference between septic arthritis and just a simple overlying cellulitis over a joint? For me, I go back to basic principles and I examine the joint. Look to see if there's stress pain, if it's an active joint, if they can actually move it. If they can't, then I'm fairly comfortable that this is probably not just a cellulitis. It's very unusual for somebody to have a cellulitis and not be able to move their joint. Similarly, I'm looking for an effusion depending on the joint, but usually I'm looking at the ankle joint and the ankle joint, it's kind of difficult to differentiate soft tissue swelling and an effusion, whereas in the knee, it's it's often easier. Yeah, and that's where point of care ultrasound can be really helpful. Just place the linear probe over the joint and look for anechoic black fluid collection in the joint space. And if you're not sure what you're looking at, just look at the other side for comparison. All right, so going on with the mimics, 
The one that I like to make sure that my residents distinguish from a simple cellulitis is uh, flexor tenosynovitis. Dr. Bamble, can you just review for us how to distinguish a simple cellulitis of the hand from flexor tenosynovitis? Well, they're going to appear similarly in that they're going to both be red and warm and there's going to be some swelling. So the main uh, differentiating feature of flexor tenosynovitis from a simple uh, cellulitis would be the exquisite pain along the flexor tendon and pain with uh, any extension of the finger. It's uh, quite a bit more sore than you would expect uh, for an ordinary cellulitis. And the treatment's often more aggressive with intravenous antibiotics and an OR washout. Well, how about bee and wasp stings? You know, I see docs putting patients on antibiotics three hours after they just, they just got stung by a wasp, for example. Uh, you know, just in case it's cellulitis, they put them on antibiotics. How do you distinguish between a sting with a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction versus a cellulitis? I think the history is everything. And when you examine the patient, it can be very difficult without the history to differentiate between a hypersensitivity reaction and a cellulitis. There's extreme redness. There's the pain. They're often very hot. So what I think is is most important in distinguishing it is understanding the onset. It's important to recognize that patients who get bee stings and wasp stings, they are at risk for getting a cellulitis. But A, it's uncommon. B, there's a substantial delay after the inciting event. Whereas when uh, somebody gets uh, stung by a bee or a wasp, the inflammation occurs usually within minutes, definitely within the first hour, hour and a half. And so just getting that on history should be able to uh, reassure the patient substantially. Occasionally, you will see a bimodal pattern to the disease. So you'll see the initial redness. It will start to regress. And then there's a secondary redness. Most of those, I think many of us believe, are related to a secondary infection or secondary cellulitis, but it's exceedingly uncommon. All right. Any other mimics uh, our listeners should know about? Erythema migrans of Lyme disease is here in the GTA, folks. Uh, so be on the lookout for it this summer. Uh, it often presents with an circular erythematous patch that's about five centimeters in diameter and growing. It's often relatively painless, and you won't necessarily get the central clearing it's still a clinical diagnosis. The Lyme serology is not so good in the first two weeks. It has a false negative rate of around 50%. What I think is really important is to recognize when something is out of keeping with the usual course of a cellulitis, and that should at least give some hints. Cellulitis, for example, rarely presents for months on end or even weeks on end and are refra refractory to antibiotics. When you see that, something else is going on. Let's do a quick review. The classic findings of cellulitis that we learned in medical school, rubor, calor, tumor, are nonspecific markers of inflammation that we see in a variety of cellulitis mimics. On the other hand, fever, streaking lymphangitis, and regional lymphadenopathy are helpful markers of infection, but unfortunately, they're only sometimes present. Now, when should we be considering alternative diagnoses to cellulitis? There's really six things. One, if it's extremely itchy, unlikely to be cellulitis. If it's bilateral, almost never cellulitis. If it's not improving with antibiotics, don't forget the cognitive bias of diagnostic momentum. You really got to think, could this be something besides cellulitis? If it's in a risky location like the inner thigh or over a joint or on the genitals, we need to be thinking about things like Fournier gangrene and septic arthritis. If the pain is extreme or totally painless, think about neck fascia, 
And lastly, if it's lasting for months on end, it's much less likely to be cellulitis. Now, how do you distinguish these mimics from cellulitis? Stasis dermatitis is probably the most commonly misdiagnosed one. It's almost always bilateral. It's usually chronic, and the redness often lessens after passive leg raise. That's a great little trick. Peripheral arterial disease can mimic cellulitis, but again, just do a passive leg raise, and if the redness lessens, it ain't cellulitis. What about DVT? Remember that DVT and cellulitis rarely coexist. In the New Zealand study, it was only about 1% of patients with cellulitis had a DVT. Monoarthritis, like septic arthritis and gout, just examine the joint. If they hit the ceiling in pain with passive range of motion, there's probably joint disease there. Flexor tenosynovitis is something you should always look out for in a patient with cellulitis of the hand. Really, the key is exquisite pain on passive extension of the finger. It's the most important feature to help clinch that diagnosis and rule out simple cellulitis. And bee and wasp stings don't cause cellulitis in the first few hours after the sting. Cellulitis takes time to develop, so pay close attention to the timing of the redness spreading. And remember that although possible, cellulitis is exceedingly uncommon after a bee or wasp sting. Lastly, there's erythema migrans of Lyme disease, and it can look like cellulitis, but it's usually relatively painless and non-tender. It's seasonal, about a 5-centimeter circular patch without streaking, and may have some central clearing, but not necessarily. Next, we're going to talk about antibiotics for simple cellulitis. We've been using cephalexin for eons to treat run-of-the-mill uncomplicated cellulitis. It's great for strep and staph. Some docs add trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole to cephalexin to cover for MRSA, which is better than, say, clindarodoxy for MRSA currently. There was a big JAMA study in 2017 looking at this question. So, Dr. Morris, which patients with simple cellulitis should we be covering for MRSA and what antibiotics should we be giving? I'd probably say almost none, to be honest with you. An important heuristic for eMERGE docs, uh, primary care physicians, and I'd say internists as well, is if it just looks red and you don't think there's pus there, it's probably streptococcal. And if it is more purulent, it's almost certainly going to be staphylococcal or staphorus in particular. So when we see a cellulitis or a non-purulent cellulitis or a non-purulent skin and soft tissue infection, to me, the most important thing is to cover the beta-hemolytic strep. And so for those, there is no beta-lactam resistance. There's never been any beta-lactam resistance from the beta-hemolytic strep, and there won't be in the foreseeable future. So I think you should feel fairly confident that your initial treatment for somebody with a straightforward cellulitis, unless there's some contraindication, would be a beta-lactam that primarily covers group A strep. And that could include any choice of beta-lactams that you want. It could even include penicillin or amoxicillin, but most of us go to cephalexin or cefprozil, which is a convenient once-daily formulation of a first-generation cephalosporin, just because of this added concern for staph aureus. But to be honest with you, I think that is a tradition that will probably change or should change over time because one of the reasons why people have chosen first-generation cephalosporins over, for example, uh, straightforward penicillin or amoxicillin has been because of the added coverage for staph aureus. But now that it seems we don't need that added coverage for staph aureus, there's probably no added benefit. 
So was the JAMA 2017 study comparing cephalexin plus trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole versus cephalexin alone, was that study consistent with what you've just said? So the JAMA study was a comparative study looking at cephalexin versus cephalexin along with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. And there was really no added benefit. The reason why they chose trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole was because it's a reliable anti-staphylococcal agent that covers MRSA. And at the time the study was done, at least 50%, depending on which region of the U.S. you were looking at, staph aureus isolates were methicillin resistant. So they wanted to make sure that they had adequate coverage of MRSA to prove the principle whether or not staph aureus needed additional coverage for cellulitis. What I thought was really interesting about this study as well is of the people who failed both in the cephalexin group and the double coverage group, over 50% ended up developing an abscess. So what this said to me was that even if you cover patients at the earliest possible stage uh, of an abscess, when they're just at the cellulitic stage, it doesn't necessarily protect them from going on to develop an abscess. All right. So the bottom line there is we rarely, if ever, need to cover for MRSA for simple cellulitis. When we talk about abscesses a bit later, we'll readdress the MRSA issue, which I find very confusing, but we'll hopefully have a nice crystal clear answer for you when we get to that. I feel like I'm probably pretty good at differentiating a simple cellulitis from a cellulitis with an abscess. But I understand that the literature says otherwise. Dr. Bamel, can physical exam reliably differentiate between cellulitis with or without an underlying abscess? It depends on the clinical scenario. So there was a study by Marin et al. published in the Academic Emergency Medicine in 2013. It basically found that when the physical exam findings are obvious, you have a red, swollen, fluctuant, tender area with a central pustule, Diagnostic accuracy of the physical exam is excellent, with the sensitivity and specificity over 90%. But when the physical exam findings are less obvious, the diagnostic accuracy of the physical exam is poor, with the sensitivity and specificity around 40%. And this is where point-of-care ultrasound can really make a difference in these cases where there's diagnostic uncertainty. In a large systematic review and meta-analysis done by Barbic and colleagues, they found that the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound for detecting cutaneous abscesses was 96 and 83% respectively. I think it is worthwhile to try to distinguish between cellulitis and abscesses because, of course, we don't want to send patients home with an abscess with antibiotics and we don't want to cut into cellulitis or other vascular structures that look like abscesses, such as inflamed lymph nodes. The one thing I would also add is, at least in my hands with my own experience, I find the ankle very difficult part of the body to examine and evaluate for the presence of pus. So I think in particular, when I see a skin and soft tissue infection with a very swollen ankle, I will often get additional imaging, uh, may just get a point-of-care ultrasound to just make sure that I'm not missing a drainable collection there. So the bottom line is the really obvious abscesses are obvious and the really obvious just pure simple cellulitis is pretty obvious, but there's a huge range of patients who come in that are in the middle where they may or may not have an abscess and our physical exam just isn't good enough to distinguish in those patients whether they have an abscess or not. If you have simple POCA skills, this is something that can really help uh, distinguish whether there's an abscess or not that's drainable because, of course, the treatment's going to be very different, which we're going to get on to soon. 
let's get back to our case. So we've got our 55-year-old man who now returns the next day after being on Keflex for 24 hours uh, with redness that spread beyond the line that was drawn around the cellulitis when they were discharged 24 hours ago from your emergency department. So Dr. Morris, now that the redness has spread, does that necessarily mean that your antibiotics aren't working and that you need to consider a different management strategy? What would you do with this patient that has returned with a spreading cellulitis? I have to admit, I probably wouldn't have had the patient return in the first place. Normally, when I see a patient with cellulitis and I start them on treatment, I tell them in advance that there's a very high likelihood that the redness is going to get worse or at least not get better for several days before reevaluating them. A study done many years ago that was looking at five days versus 10 days of therapy with levofloxacin for cellulitis what they did is they reevaluated the patients at day five and then randomized them. And I think there was a fair amount of wisdom in that study design because there was a recognition that cellulitis does take some time to improve and upwards of about 96 hours before you start seeing improvements. Even at 72 hours, you may not start to see improvement. It's, it would be unusual for somebody not to start improving uh, within about 96 hours of starting therapy. So starting to see some redness increase initially on therapy, in my mind, uh, doesn't change my diagnostic thinking whatsoever, nor in, in terms of my management. That drives home the importance of good discharge instructions when you diagnose someone with uh, cellulitis. How then would you define treatment failure? I mean, you had mentioned the number 72 hours, 96 hours. Like, At what point do you decide that, you know what, these antibiotics aren't working for the cellulitis? Pain is something that if it comes with the onset of the illness, uh, we should start to see improvement of the pain. Similarly, uh, the heat is something that I expect to see substantial improvement on. Redness may persist for quite a while, especially redness on dependency. Part of that is because accompanying a cellulitis, especially of the lower extremities, there is a, a kind of a thrombophlebitis. The veins become inflamed and they often become incompetent. And so the post-phlebitic syndrome is one where after successful treatment of cellulitis, they get residual redness and swelling of the lower extremity that was uh, affected primarily because of the venous incompetence. It's not because of treatment failure. So I think progression of redness to me is treatment failure or misdiagnosis, one or the other. I think ongoing pain that's failed to resolve that developed at the onset of disease that has not improved, that also is a reason for me to reconsider treatment failure or misdiagnosis. And I also think if there's still a substantial heat accompanying the redness that persists, it makes me wonder if there's something else going on and I've uh, either missed the diagnosis or haven't treated properly. Okay, so all this talk about treatment failure and how long you should wait to assess whether you have a treatment failure or not, that brings up the question of how long we should prescribe antibiotics for, for simple cellulitis. You know, I see some people prescribing for five days, seven days, 10 days. How long should we be prescribing antibiotics for? I wish I knew. <laughs> we know from one of the randomized control trials that I mentioned before using a fluoroquinolone, that five days is non-inferior to 10 days. So at least if you're using fluoroquinolones, you can get away with five days. We really don't know 
with a fair amount of certainty how long to use the other agents. I think many people have gone to seven days and increasingly more and more people are going to five days. I suspect that five days is adequate for most cases of cellulitis, but we just don't have the studies that allow us to confidently say that. All right. So practically speaking, I mean, if someone has a follow-up in five days, you can give them five days of antibiotics, ensuring that they have a follow-up to see whether they need ongoing antibiotics after that. What about patients with penicillin allergy? So what are your antibiotic choices then? I mean, we used to avoid cephalosporins, for example, in patients with penicillin allergy. Could you just give us a few numbers on what the likelihood of patients having a severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis from cephalosporins and what we should do with patients with a penicillin allergy? Should we just ignore it and just go with our cephalexin? What's your take? The first thing I would say is that most people who report penicillin allergies don't have any allergy whatsoever. The second thing I'd say is that those who had a penicillin allergy most often no longer have a penicillin allergy. They had an allergic reaction many years ago, and like all other allergies in our lives, they wax and wane over time for reasons that we don't entirely understand. The third thing I would say is that penicillin allergy doesn't mean beta-lactam allergy. And although there is cross-reactivity between, let's say, a first-generation cephalosporin like cephalexin or cephazolin and penicillins, the cross-reactivity is very low. If we were to be extremely conservative, we would say 10%, but it's almost certainly less than that. And that relates to prior impurities in, in production. So nowadays, with improved production quality, the cross-reactivity is less. The Fourth thing I would add to that is not all allergic reactions are the same. And so I'm much more concerned and conservative when somebody has a history of anaphylaxis, tongue swelling and, you know, cardiovascular collapse or any, any other uh, severe anaphylaxis-like reactions, as opposed to somebody who had a history of a rash in the past. And again, it's really important to be asking the questions. Most of our patients, and we've looked at this and it's in the literature repeatedly, most patients who report an allergy to to antibiotics are actually reporting intolerance of antibiotics, usually gastrointestinal intolerance. So there are a few simple questions that you can ask that should be able to reassure you. And it should be rather uncommon that you're not able to prescribe a beta-lactam antibiotic like uh, cefazolin or cephalaxin. If I were to go to your second, the second part of your question, what to prescribe for cellulitis if you can't prescribe cephalaxin or uh, uh, cefazolin, I think you've got a bunch of options. One option that people often go to that I wouldn't recommend is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. There are theoretical and I think practical reasons why trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is not good. In particular, it has rather poor activity against the beta-hemolytic streptococci. So doxycycline is good. Clindamycin is acceptable. We can go with um, macrolides. But 
more and more infectious disease physicians and uh, other people who uh, commonly deal with complex cellulitis try and stay away from clindamycin and the macrolides because of a higher rate of resistance from group A strep. So fluoroquinolones are another option that can be used that are highly reliable. Of course, there's all the complications of fluoroquinolones and uh, on top of how broad spectrum they are, but there's certainly a reasonable option. There are even more broad spectrum antibiotics that we could use, but we should rarely be going for those with people with uh, simple cellulitis. All right. So doxycycline would be a reasonable choice for someone who can't take penicillin or cephalexin and fluoroquinolones. And now for EBM Bottom Line. Hi guys, it's Justin Morgenstern. For this episode's EBM Bottom Line, I wanted to ask, what's the value of IV antibiotics in cellulitis? And I was somewhat surprised that for such a common condition and such a common question, there's almost no research out there. But there are a few RCTs to guide us, and I'm going to focus on one that I think is the most helpful. It is by Ab Boltons in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy in 2014. In this small RCT, they looked at patients with cellulitis in whom the emergency physician thought that IV treatment was necessary, either because of failure of current oral therapy or systemic symptoms. And this is exactly the group of patients that we once studied. They randomized these patients to either oral therapy with cephalexin 1 gram QID or parenteral therapy with cefazolin 2 grams BID. These patients were pretty sick at baseline, with about 75% having signs of systemic illness. The two groups were pretty even at baseline, but the oral group does look a little bit sicker, which again could bias the results in favor of the IV treatment. Their primary outcome was the time it took for the cellulitis to stop advancing, and this was a non-inferiority trial. And the results? The cellulitis stopped advancing in 1.3 days in the oral group and 1.8 days in the IV group. Now, that difference isn't big enough to say that oral therapy was statistically better, but it's enough to say that it was non-inferior. There was one treatment failure in the oral group as compared to five in the IV group, but the difference was not significant. There were no differences in any of the secondary outcome. Now, there are some limits here as this is a small, single-centered trial, but the results actually fit with other available research. There's a Cochrane review on skin and soft tissue infections from 2010, and they found two other RCTs comparing oral antibiotics to IV. These studies are complicated by the fact that the oral and IV groups use different classes of antibiotics, but in both of these studies, the oral group did better than the IV group. Three RCTs and three times that oral looks at least as good as IV. Now, a huge part of evidence-based medicine is understanding the prior probability of the treatment working. IV antibiotics are advantageous when minutes are essential, but that's rarely the case in cellulitis. They're also needed when the oral route just isn't possible, either because of vomiting or because the agent isn't absorbed through the GI tract. Outside of those situations, the bacteria in your leg have no idea whether the antibiotic entered your system through the stomach or through an IV. It doesn't make sense that the IV route would be better if we're comparing comparable doses of comparable antibiotics. So my EBM bottom line, although there isn't a ton of evidence here, I think it's pretty clear that oral and IV are going to be equivalent. There's no reason to think that IV antibiotics are somehow magically better than oral antibiotics. As long as the patient can swallow, isn't septic, and doesn't need admission, I use oral antibiotics.
So Dr. Morris, we've talked a lot about antimicrobial choices for cellulitis. Are there any exceptions to your antimicrobial choice based on the location of the cellulitis? Postpartum mastitis is a pretty common condition that requires a few different principles of management. It certainly requires, I think, more patient education. Often women who are breastfeeding, because of the pain and tenderness that the mastitis confers, may reduce the amount of breastfeeding they do, which often exacerbates the problem. So that requires a fair amount of education to encourage them to continue breastfeeding. There's often a concern around the safety to the baby for ongoing breastfeeding in the presence of infection, but there's a fair amount of literature to suggest that there's no additional risk. And the antibiotic choice, I think most people are more comfortable with penicillins or cephalosporins, especially if there's no MRSA present, you can get away with using cephalexin in that situation. I think the concerns are quinolones. There's a fair amount of uncertainty around the safety for fluoroquinolones for these infections. And additionally, if there's a premature baby or one with hyperbilirubinemia, then you'd want to avoid using trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So for those a variety of reasons, we'd probably try and be a bit more restrictive on the antibiotics and definitely focus uh, a lot on uh, educating the patient. Let's talk disposition for simple cellulitis. There seems to be an enormous practice variation when it comes to disposition, and the question often arises which patients require admission. Now, consistent with Dr. Morgenstern's take on IV versus oral antibiotics, the IDSA guidelines suggest that the only patients who require IV antibiotics are immunocompromised patients, and that's not diabetic patients that they include in that, patients that have systemic signs of infection defined by the SERS criteria, and those who are hemodynamically unstable or who have altered mental status. Now, any of these patients, I think we'd all agree, would probably require admission. Then there are the patients who fail oral antibiotics. And remember, failure of oral antibiotics is really only in those patients who develop systemic symptoms and signs or have no improvement in pain, heat, or have progression of redness after 48 to 72 hours of treatment. Now, these treatment failure patients don't necessarily require admission. They can be tried on a different oral antibiotic. As long as they don't have systemic signs of infection, they probably don't need IV antibiotics. Lastly, while it's controversial, some experts suggest that patients with a high BMI might be more likely to fail PO antibiotics, and consideration should be given to IV antibiotics plus minus admission for these obese patients. We've beat cellulitis almost to death. Let's move on to skin abscesses. I'd like to discuss a bit about pain control for IND, which is the best method to drain an abscess, the role of POCUS, which patients with abscess require CNS swabs, which ones require antibiotics, coverage for MRSA, and packing. So we've got a lot to cover for abscesses. Let's start with pain control for an IND. You know, abscess drainage has been rated as the second most painful common ED procedure after NG tube insertion. And we all know how difficult it is to achieve good pain control with local infiltration of, of xylocaine. So Dr. Bamel, what is the best way of providing analgesia for abscess and IND? You know, while, while procedural sedation works, it demands huge resources, it's expensive, and it does carry rare but serious complications. 
So I think for most simple cutaneous abscesses, a generous field block will do the trick. Uh, so for an average 70 kilo patient, I'm taking 10 cc's of 2% Lido with Epi and spreading it in a field block pattern around the abscess with a 25 gauge, one and a half inch needle bent carefully at the hub to about 90 degrees. I think uh, if you're not getting adequate analgesia with that, it's often because you're not using enough anesthetic. The pH of the infected tissue is acidic, and that can interfere with the effectiveness of the anesthetic, so using more helps. Uh, you can also, as you mentioned, directly infiltrate the roof of the abscess, but this tends to be painful and not so effective and has a higher chance of bursting into your face. There's also ultrasound-guided regional nerve blocks, which is super elegant. The one I tend to use the most is the tibial nerve block, especially when I'm working up north where uh, folks enjoy walking around in the great outdoors without any shoes on. Freezes the sole of the foot and allows you to drain abscesses and remove foreign bodies without having to directly you know, poke the sole of the foot itself, which as we all know is painful. And it can also distort the tissue and make it a bit more difficult for you to see and feel small foreign bodies. I just place the probe over the medial mal, look for the posterior tibial artery, and right next to it is your tibial nerve. So I guess the big pitfall there is just not using enough xylocaine when you're doing a field block. You really should be using upwards of 10 cc's. The xylocaine bottles come in 20 cc's, which very conveniently happens to be the uh, toxic dose if you do inadvertently inject it into the, the circulation. All right, so you've got your three options there. You can do procedural sedation, a regional nerve block, or a generous field block, with the big pitfall being not making it generous enough. And Dr. Bamel, any tips or tricks on how best to drain a skin abscess? You know, there's the single straight incision, there's the cruciate incision, there's two separate incisions with the loop drainage technique, there's ultrasound-guided needle aspiration. What does the literature say about what the best way is to drain an abscess? Does it depend on the kind of abscess, the size of abscess, the location of the abscess? This is something that I think there's a huge practice variation. Maybe we can help clarify a bit. Sure. So I think for most small, simple cutaneous abscesses, a simple traditional linear incision with 11-blade scalpel is the way to go. And you want to make the incision big enough to allow for a blunt instrument to get in there and break up loculations. The cruciate incision uh, is also an option, but it hasn't shown, been shown to be better than the simple linear incision, and it can leave a worse scar. The needle-guided aspiration has a higher failure rate associated with it in the literature than the traditional uh, linear incision. There are two exceptions, however, to this. There is the ultrasound-guided needle aspiration of breast abscesses and ultrasound-guided needle aspiration of peritonsillar abscesses that has been shown to be effective. And finally, the loop drainage method that you mentioned uh, has been shown to be effective in small retrospective studies. Uh, I haven't done it myself, but my understanding is that you make two small incisions on either side of the abscess and then insert a cotton tip applicator to break up the loculations and then thread something like a Penrose drain through each of the holes and tie it up loosely on the skin surface, uh, forming a loop. And then this loop stays in place for about a week and the patient uh, bathes as per usual. The advantage to this is that uh, the cosmetic outcome is supposed to be better because you're making smaller incisions. However, you know, if it was me personally, uh, I'd probably still prefer the um, traditional IND and just getting it over with in the emergency department. This seems like a bit more of a drawn out process. All right. Yeah, we'll have some links to the, the loop drainage method. But let's say you've drained the abscess with your method of choice. Uh, Dr. Morris, 
should we first be sending off wound swabs routinely in these patients? You know, which patients would you recommend sending wound swabs on? My understanding is that the IDSA guidelines suggest sending swabs on all but the mildest abscesses because of increasing rates of MRSA, uh, but the results rarely change management, apparently, especially if you're going to be covering for MRSA anyways, which a lot of docs, at least south of the border, do. Knowing that you are an ID specialist and that there's going to be a certain referral bias, you see sort of the worst of the worst patients, which patients should we be doing swabs on? So you're right. As an infectious disease physician, I certainly have my biases. Uh, you know, to a hammer, everything is a nail. And infectious disease physicians like microbiological samples. Despite that, there really isn't a very strong rationale from a clinical perspective to routinely obtain samples from skin abscesses. And so I certainly don't recommend uh, sending off all initial samples to the lab. I think where you do want to send it off is where you think there might be a clinical reason to gain some guidance. So somebody who has uh, challenges with antibiotic choice because of multiple medication allergies or intolerances, you may want to know what the susceptibilities are early on because you know already there's going to be some challenges with antibiotic choice. I think if there's been substantial prior antimicrobial exposure, so again, there's some selection pressure and that might be limiting your choices, that might be another reason. And I think the third reason would be in patients where this abscess represents treatment failure. They were already received a course of empiric antimicrobial therapy, but they've relapsed or just haven't responded to initial therapy. And in that situation, you want to know if this is a bug and drug problem where there's a mismatch between your choice of antibiotics and the organism growing. Fair enough. And Dr. Bamel, usually when a surgeon drains an abscess, they love to irrigate the abscess uh, after they've done their IND. Is there any good evidence for improved outcomes with irrigating an abscess after you've drained it? So there's no uh, good evidence of improved outcomes. And in fact, there's some evidence that irrigation does not provide any benefit from a small study done by Chinook and colleagues in 2016 that was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, there were a lot of variables at play in this study to truly conclude that irrigation is useless. I'm not suggesting that we repeat the study with a large sample size, consecutively enroll patients, and control for all variables like packing, antibiotics, amount of irrigation fluid used, etc., because that wouldn't be worth the time and the cost. So I think for most small, simple cutaneous abscesses, a simple incision and drainage is likely sufficient. However, for larger abscesses, more complex abscesses, such as those associated with diabetic uh, foot ulcers or traumatic wounds, I think that there's some reasonable theoretical benefit to reducing bacterial burden with irrigation. And irrigation also allows you to see the abscess cavity uh, more clearly. I've been surprised on occasion to see underlying bone that I wouldn't have appreciated if I didn't do a thorough debridement with some irrigation. And I wouldn't use the mess associated with irrigation as an excuse not to irrigate. A suction catheter can help keep it under control. Suffice to say that uh, while there's no good evidence that irrigation portends better outcomes, I think something that I see not done quite often, which is probably a lot more important than irrigation, is just breaking up those loculations. Um, so again, it goes back to providing good analgesia once you provide good analgesia, then there's really very little excuse to not break up those loculations. And I suppose it's still reasonable to irrigate after you've broken up those loculations in large abscesses. Mm -hmm. 
Let's move on to packing. We know that packing abscesses is painful, not only when we pack them, but also after they go home. But they do seem to help keep the skin open so that the abscess can continue to drain, which is really what our goal is. Dr. Bamel, what are the indications for packing an abscess? So again, for simple, small, cutaneous abscesses, uh, no packing is required. Uh, there were two small studies done by O'Malley and Kessler uh, in the emergency department that basically showed that abscesses that were packed versus abscesses that weren't packed, uh, there was no difference in, in treatment outcome. Again, for abscesses that are more complex or bigger, like the ones that were excluded from these studies, I do think that in some cases, some loose packing where a wick is indicated. I like to use povidone iodine, uh, soaked ribbon gauze, uh, which provides uh, local antimicrobial action in the wound bed. There's no literature on this in the emergency department, but this is certainly a common practice in infected chronic wounds. And I think the same principle can be applied to infected acute wounds. The antiseptic uh, lowers the bacterial burden in the wound bed and allows the tissue to heal. And when you do pack these larger abscesses, you're, first of all, you're talking more than five centimeters in diameter? Yeah, I'm talking larger abscesses. I'm talking about diabetic abscesses uh, associated with diabetic foot uh, ulcers. I'm talking about infected traumatic wounds. I'm talking about abscesses in areas where the skin closes really quickly, like in the axilla and the groin. Uh, those are the abscesses that I tend to pack for a short period of time. All right. And when you say loose packing, I mean, one of the other pitfalls I see is people packing the abscess as tight as they possibly can, which, of course, will cause more pain. How much packing do you actually put into these? Like, let's say you've got a six centimeter abscess, a pretty big abscess. How much ribbon gauze would you actually put in there? Yeah, not very much. You know, as a medical student, I felt like I was measured on how much packing I could get into the wound. You just need to put enough to keep the wound open, which is often not very much, but you don't want to put too little that it just falls out within two seconds. So the main thing is that the packing is keeping the wound open and then the antiseptic that you coat the packing in is going to provide some local antibacterial and antimicrobial action. Let's move on uh, to MRSA with abscesses. We talked about MRSA with simple cellulitis, and that was relatively simple, but it's actually more complicated when it comes to abscesses. There have been a few landmark papers recently that suggest that many simple abscesses do better with antibiotics in addition to the old IND, but I don't see everyone giving antibiotics to all patients with skin abscesses in the emergency department, at least not in uh, at North York General. Dr. Morris, before we get into which patients with skin abscess require antibiotics after IND, I think we need to understand a little bit about MRSA. So which patients, first of all, are at risk for MRSA? How do people get infected with MRSA? And what do ED docs need to understand about MRSA when it comes to abscesses? MRSA is a moving target. MRSA is an endemic uh, organism now, and it's anywhere from 10% of the population whose staph organism, a staph aureus organism is methicillin resistant to upwards of 50%. We know over the last few years that there's been a global decline in MRSA rates for reasons that are unclear. So it poses a problem, but because those rates are so high, relying on the patient's demographics to decide whether or not they're infected with MRSA is not really a good strategy. Okay, so that basically throws risk factors out the window. So then we're left with the possibility that anyone with an abscess could have MRSA. In fact, there's upwards of the 50% chance that they could have MRSA depending on where you practice. 
So that comes to the question of in patients with an abscess that we've drained in the emergency department, which patients should be going home on antibiotics? It's a loaded question. And uh, I think it's not a simple one because although in my mind, the literature is fairly clear now that there's a benefit from antibiotics in patients, even with abscesses of around four to five centimeters, how much they benefit isn't tremendous. So you might get for every 10 people who you see in the emergency department, maybe one is going to benefit from adjunctive antibiotics in addition to the drainage that Melanie's described. And so along with the modest potential benefits that the antibiotics confer, you also have to deal with the side effects that the antibiotics can give, which by and large are gastrointestinal side effects, but they can be allergic side effects. And to be honest, even though most side effects are relatively uncommon, somebody wins the lottery and somebody ends up getting a severe hypersensitivity reaction. Somebody gets Clostridium difficile infection. So even though the published studies don't necessarily show tremendous harm to receiving the antibiotics other than primarily gastrointestinal side effects, I don't think that needs to be ignored in the discussion with the patient. Recently, I think the most thoughtful approach was one published in the British Medical Journal just several months ago, where they actually published a decision aid which summarized the results of a systematic review on management of skin abscesses. And what that shows is that what is really needed is a conversation with the patient. And so what I've now made my standard in speaking with patients, really before that decision aid, but it's certainly supported um, my questioning, is I will tell the patient, you're probably going to be just fine with the drainage alone, but antibiotics are going to give you some benefit. And I don't know which patient's going to benefit from the antibiotics. It could be you or somebody else. But if I have 10 patients like you, probably one of those patients is not going to have to return to the emergency department for further management. All the other nine, it won't make a difference whether I give them antibiotics or not. These antibiotics, you're probably going to handle okay, but there's a good chance it's going to um, give you some uh, stomach upset. And usually you'll be fine with it, but some people find it totally intolerable. Would you like to take the antibiotics or not? Or do you have any other questions? And in my mind, that's usually sufficient. At the end of the day, sometimes they'll end up saying, well, doctor, what do you want to do? And I have to admit more and more, I'm starting to say, take the antibiotics for five days. Whereas before I would have probably said, don't do anything. Part of that decision-making is also related to the antibiotic choice because, in my mind, the choices are threefold. Two, which have been well-studied now, which are trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and clindamycin. And in my mind, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole trumps clindamycin because of its safety and side effect profile. And you basically have double the likelihood of side effects, including diarrhea with the uh, clindamycin versus the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. But the one agent that really isn't studied much in the literature for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me is doxycycline. And doxycycline is an incredibly well-tolerated anti-staphylococcal agent. Most of our staphoriases are susceptible to doxycycline. 
And in my mind, the first antibiotic that I will reach to is doxycycline. My second line would be trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and then third line would be clindamycin. To sum that all up, I understand from the studies there's about a 7% absolute increase in clinical improvement in patients who do take antibiotics after an abscess drainage. However, there's also a 7% rate approximately of mostly GI side effects. This is a great area where we should be employing patient-centered care and having a discussion with a patient that doxycycline should be your first go-to and then the second and third line would be septra and then the third line would be clindamycin. The other takeaway that I got from the Talon study was that certain patients may benefit not just for themselves, but for in terms of preventing uh, recurrent abscesses and higher cure rates, but also uh, reduce the number of household members they get affected by it. So, for example, I had a patient um, who became colonized with MRSA when he was in hospital for the birth of his son, and he came to the eMERGE with recurrent abscesses. And I treated him, and the results of this study definitely support that. Uh, but he was terrified of passing along this condition to his newborn baby and, and uh, wife. And the results of this study support uh, treating him to prevent uh, transmission to his family members. And I also, in him, uh, considered and did uh, use topical decolonization uh, with uh, two to four percent chlorhexidine washes and mupirocin cream so that not only would he be treated but would reduce transmission. So suffice to say that this is a controversial area that really we have to be employing patient-centered care and one pearl that I love at this point at least is that uh, doxycycline is a drug that is probably safer than Septra and we should be considering it uh, more often in these patients who we do decide need antibiotics after an incision drainage of an abscess. Something that didn't come up in our discussion is the relative dangers of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or septra or bactrim. In most of the studies where it's been used for skin and soft tissue infections, the population is relatively healthy and relatively young. But trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole has numerous drug interactions. It increases the likelihood of acute kidney injury. It increases rates of hyperkalemia. These are not mild problems and I think shouldn't be taken lightly and perhaps has been minimized in all the discussion around skin and soft tissue infections because of the patients included in those studies as opposed to what we see in the real world. All right, let's review abscesses here. First, for analgesia before IND, while procedural sedation is an option, it is very resource-heavy, and a generous field block or a nerve block, if done properly, is almost always effective. In terms of the best method to drain an abscess, first, the simple linear incision is as good as a cruciate incision, but with better cosmetic outcome. Next, Needle aspiration is not as good as IND, with the exception of peritonsillar abscess and breast abscess. And finally, the loop drainage method could be considered for large abscesses and may have better cosmetic outcomes. Now, which patients need a wound swab? There's three situations. One, patients with multiple medication allergies or intolerances. Two, patients who have been on multiple rounds of antibiotics in the past. And three, abscesses that are treatment failures. 
Remember that it's very important to dig deep and break up any loculations in the abscess, but you don't necessarily need to irrigate the abscess. There's no good evidence for improved outcomes with irrigation, but nonetheless, you may want to consider irrigation for larger, complicated abscesses. Don't routinely pack abscesses. The literature supports large ones, that's greater than 5 centimeters in diameter, do require packing. And according to Dr. Bamel, consider packing only for abscesses in areas where the skin closes easily, like the axilla and the groin, as well as abscesses associated with diabetic foot ulcers. And by packing, I mean just a few centimeters of providone-soaked ribbon gauze that acts as a wick just to keep the wound open and that the patient can remove themselves in a few days. Which patients should receive antibiotics after an IND of their abscess? Well, it's not 100% clear. The literature does suggest a number needed to treat of about 10 for improved outcomes. However, the number needed to harm is about the same. So giving doxy or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or clinda after an IND is acceptable. Just remember that there are side effects and potentially rare but life-threatening side effects with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and clindamycin. Doxy is probably your best choice. This is a great situation where shared decision-making is totally key. And then finally, you should probably lean more towards giving antibiotics in patients with recurrent abscesses to prevent transmission to family members and such. Next, we're on to the last case. Let's move on to our last case. It's actually going to be similar to the first case. So let's say our 55-year-old man with a history of diabetes came in with 12 hours of increasing pain in the right calf, but this time he rates his pain as 9 out of 10 instead of 3 out of 10, and this time he has a fever, he's tachycardic at 140, and he tells you that his blood sugar is sky high. When you examine his leg, there's only the slightest hint of erythema over an area of about 5 centimeters, but he's exquisitely tender all over the calf. You order a septic workup, some analgesia, you give some IV ANSEF and a bolus of fluid, and an hour later, the nurse calls you to the bedside because the rash has rapidly spread and his pressure is in the boots. Well, at this point, it's fairly obvious. This poor guy has necrotizing fasciitis and needs to go to the UR like now. So... Let's talk a little bit about necrotizing fasciitis. This is a, a very challenging, but thankfully not common diagnosis. Let's just talk about first, what is necrotizing fasciitis? Dr. Morris? There's really two kinds of necrotizing fasciitis. There's the necrotizing fasciitis that is primarily a bug problem, and it's usually polymicrobial. Fournier's gangrene is a variant of this. So it's usually gut organisms that cause this rapidly destructive infection of the fascia. But the one that we're primarily going to focus on today is the other kind, sometimes referred to as type 2, where the first one's referred to as type 1. And type 2 necrotizing fasciitis is a monomicrobial infection of the fascia that half of the problem is the organism and half of the problem is the rather robust immune stimulation that occurs alongside it. 
And what those two things do is cause fairly rapid destruction and um, of the fascia with spread along fascial planes. And it's accompanied by fairly profound uh, systemic illness as well, usually with uh, shock-like syndrome. All right. And my understanding is that the diagnosis can only be made on surgery, right? I think most of us will only accept at the end of the day a surgical diagnosis, but there are things that can help us make the diagnosis earlier because certainly we can make the diagnosis uh, without a, a surgical intervention. All right. And, and Dr. Bamel, some of the risk factors for necrotizing fasciitis, could you just review those for us? I don't know that they're different from um, skin and soft tissue infections. You know, anyone who's immunocompromised, like the patient in this example, uh, with diabetes who, uh, that may or may not be well controlled. I, I, would, I would say that one of the things that's quite remarkable is how often it occurs after blunt trauma. So there's no obvious penetrating injury. But, you know, I've seen people with uh, having a, a log uh, landing on their leg, but the, the leg had, you know, it was covered with uh, pants and there's no obvious markings underneath. It wasn't like a major big log or anything. And it was just this blunt trauma. And then they end up uh, developing uh, necrotizing fasciitis. The other thing that we saw certainly much more in the literature, and it's been one of the benefits of vaccination has been following chickenpox, but it is still seen to occur occasionally uh, following shingles. So obviously because of the skin breakdown is just an added portal of entry, but uh, you know, shingles and chickenpox are also potential risk factors. Diabetes is probably the most common risk factors, but definitely trauma, even minor trauma uh, is a risk factor we need to think about. And of course, just like most things in medicine, Neck fash can happen without any risk factors that are identifiable on, on history. So that's a little bit about risk factors. That's a little bit about what neck fash actually is. What are some of the sort of common presenting symptoms? Like we've all heard the sort of pain out of proportion on exam. Um, you had mentioned these patients usually look pretty sick and, you know, they're in shock. Hopefully we want to try and pick these up before they get really, really sick. I mean, those are really the patients that we can save because this has a very high mortality rate, you know, upwards of 20, 30%. And what we hope is we can catch them early on. So what are some of the early clinical clues to uh, a necrotizing fasciitis? So I would say uh, patients with fever, fever and rigors would make me suspicious. So they just appear a little bit sicker than the ordinary cellulitis. They have tachycardia out of proportion to the fever uh, would concern me and also altered mental status. So a bit of confusion uh, and any cellulitis in the general region would, would definitely make me think about neck fash. I have to admit, I find that early diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis is extremely difficult. The signs and symptoms are fairly vague and nonspecific. And certainly on retrospect, we can say, of course, this patient had necrotizing fasciitis. But I've seen patients who have been to the emergency department a couple of times with a sore shoulder, nothing to see on physical exam. They get sent home with uh, pain management, and then they come back with obvious necrotizing fasciitis 48 hours later. And, you know, the clinicians who initially saw the patients are kicking themselves that they missed the diagnosis. But I think that it would probably be unwise for us to treat every painful uh, limb or body parts with an absence of findings as necrotizing fasciitis. 
seeing hints of redness, uh, I guess erythema, or uh, sometimes it appears as a bruise, I think is is helpful. There are often are features of toxic shock syndrome as well. So conjunctival injection, libido reticularis, so a lace-like rash over the knees, um, hemodynamic instability. I think these are things that, at least on clinical exam, may help you. And then lab parameters as well. So when patients have this toxin-mediated disease, they often have evidence of organ dysfunction like in sepsis. So they will have coagulopathies and, you know, with an elevated INR, hypoalbuminemia. They may show some renal dysfunction, some thrombocytopenia. They may even have DIC. But any other hint um, from physical exam or blood work that there's something not usual with their pain, I think, is really helpful. And the other thing I would point out is it can look like a cellulitis. Because the fascia doesn't have uh, lymphatic drainage, you don't see lymphangitis with necrotizing fasciitis. So if you see lymphangitis, you can be fairly reassured that this is not necrotizing fasciitis. There isn't much of an overlap syndrome, whereas erysipelas and cellulitis is a fair amount of overlap. There isn't much of an overlap with NF and a cellulitis. So if you see lymphangitic streaking, it's probably not necrotizing fasciitis. Another thing that's been fairly reliable, again, there's nothing perfect, is the local anesthesia. So in the area of redness and patients with cellulitis, they still are able to feel you touching them. It may feel altered, but they still should be able to feel you. But because of the necrosis where the nerves travel, there's anesthesia over the location where there's redness and necrotizing fasciitis. So those are some kind of pearls that may help you identify uh, cases. Well, those are great pearls. So if they have streaking lymphangitis, that makes neck fash much less likely. And if they actually have true decreased sensation or no sensation at the area, that makes neck fash more likely. So yeah, I mean, my understanding is that the misdiagnosis rate is as high as 70%. So any of you out there, I'm sure there's some of you out there who were the unlucky ones to have seen the patient first before they had really any obvious signs of neck fash and then they, they came back to your department uh, much sicker with neck fash, you shouldn't be kicking yourself because uh, this is you know, almost like the standard is to miss it initially. So far, we've talked about some of the clues being, you know, scrutinizing those vital signs. If there's any hint of hemodynamic instability, the local decrease in sensation, if they've got obvious signs of cellulitis with streaking lymphangitis, that makes it a lot more likely that it's cellulitis. These patients often sort of appear toxic and that they might have some overlap with uh, toxic shock syndrome with the lacy rash over the knees. What about, I've read that the tenderness outside the area of erythema is another clue that it might be neck fash. Sure. Well, just that the skin findings are often the tip of the iceberg, as, as Andrew alluded to. So the infection starts underneath the skin in the subcutaneous tissue and along the superficial fascia and then spreads along the deep fascia. So what you're seeing on the skin, again, is just uh, a small part of the story. When you talk about the decreased sensation, uh, one of the big pitfalls in the diagnosis of neck fash is assuming that if the patient is not hitting the ceiling in pain, that there's no necrotizing fasciitis. You know, I've seen a neck fash in a diabetic patient who reported only 2 out of 10 pain. 
So I suppose the same reason why they can have decreased local sensation is the same reason why they may report only one or two or three out of 10 pain, um, as opposed to the typical excruciating pain that we read about for necrotizing fasciitis. So you had mentioned how lab work can sometimes give you a clue if the lactate's really high, if the CK is really high, let's say the CRP is really high. Is there any lab work that can help you rule out neck fasci? I don't think so. Totally normal radiographic imaging is often reassuring. So that would include, you know, CT or MRI, but it doesn't rule it out. I think a normal CK, um, when you're suspecting rather extensive disease, is also reassuring. But I don't think there's any single test that is absolutely reassuring. Again, while sky-high CRP or CK or lactate is obviously concerning, the lack of those findings doesn't help us rule it out. There was a score that integrated a whole bunch of lab findings that tried to help us rule in and out necrotizing fasciitis, the L-R-I-N-E-C or the L-RINIC score from 2004. It used CRP, white blood cell count, hemoglobin, creatinine, and glucose. Can we rely on this score to help us rule out neck fasci? Uh, no, I think it can help support your clinical diagnosis uh, if it's high, but small subsequent uh, retrospective studies after the Alrenic score came out haven't shown that it's super effective. So I think, again, it can be, can be supportive, but it's not going to rule it out and I uh, can't necessarily confirm the diagnosis either. All right, let's talk a little bit more specifically about imaging. You had uh, mentioned that imaging can be supportive. What is the role of, of imaging? Like are x-rays of any use, ultrasounds, point-of-care ultrasound? We often see people getting CTs. First, is there any value in getting an x-ray to look for gas, for example? Yeah, so our ability to detect crepitus on physical exam is limited. So any imaging that shows soft tissue gas can be helpful because it can quickly rule in the diagnosis and you'll have no trouble getting help from your surgical colleagues. But the lack of soft tissue gas on an imaging study doesn't rule out the diagnosis. So, for example, with x-rays, they're only about 50% sensitive. So there could be gas there and it's just not picking it up. And also, as Dr. Morris said, there are certain bugs that cause neck fash, like group A strep, that don't produce gas. So you can still have neck fash in the absence of gas. Can we say then that there really is no imaging study that can rule out neck fash? Correct. So I guess, you know, you might be in the unlucky position where you have someone that for whatever reason, clinically, you suspect they might have neck fash. Let's say they have severe pain and uh, they have hypoesthesia at the area of the rash. You do a CT and the CT is perfectly normal. Those patients could still have neck fash and may still warrant a surgical consultation. Yeah, that's a tough position to be in, right? So you have a sick patient, abnormal lab values, abnormal vital signs, and your imaging doesn't support your clinical diagnosis. I've certainly been in this situation before, and it can be really tough to convince your surgical colleagues to come in at 2 o'clock in the morning to assess the patient. I guess you can be brave and potentially uh, make an incision yourself down to the deep fascia and look for... Uh, signs uh, of neck fascia, like lack of bleeding, dishwater pus, and the ability to dissect the tissue easily with your finger. Uh, but I think most of us are brave enough to do that. So we end up with a delayed diagnosis in a patient who waits till the morning for a surgical consultation. You were mentioning there um, 
I believe the the finger test where you actually yeah. cut down to the fascia. I mean, I guess that's if you're stuck up in tuck to yuck tuck or if you don't have enough to go on with imaging and you really feel like this patient might have neck fascia, you can actually cut the skin, make an incision. Um, it has to be a deep incision. And if, if it's not bleeding, that's one of the clues that it could be neck fascia. Uh, and if you get that sort of gray, they call it dishwater pus that comes out, that's pretty convincing that it is neck fascia. You can also try point-of-care ultrasound. It's not uh, it's not perfect, but uh, if you do see soft tissue gas, which is going to be bright hyperechoic areas with dirty shadowing within the soft tissue, that can help you quickly rule in the diagnosis and just give you that confidence to push for that stat scan and uh, and call the surgeon. So just to review some of the pitfalls, you know, while the obvious cases are obvious, it's impossible to rule out neck fascia just on clinical tests or lab tests or imaging. So assuming no neck fascia in a patient who looks well is a big pitfall. Just remember that early detection of neck fascia is really key to a favorable outcome. Uh, so you know by the time they're hemodynamically unstable, it might be too late. If a patient is hemodynamically unstable, you definitely don't want to be doing an extensive workup with CTs and MRIs that can lead to a delay to the OR but the discussion with the surgeon will depend on how sick the patient is. In terms of uh, some of the pearls, we really need to scrutinize the vital signs because most patients will have tachycardia or tachypnea out of proportion to the fever if they do have a fever. And another pearl would be, you know, if you have a pretty sick patient who you think might have neck fascia, but they're not that sick that it's a slam dunk, uh, that POCUS might be able to help you identify free air pretty quickly uh, if it's that subtype of ne necrotizing fasciitis, and that can help support your, your diagnosis. All right, before we wrap it up, I'd like just to ask both of you what you think the future holds for the recognition and management of soft tissue infections in the emergency department. I'm hoping somewhere in the next five to 10 years, we'll have full point of care diagnostics. So when somebody comes in, you'll put a probe to the skin and not only will you know if it's infected, but you'll know the organism and you'll know susceptibilities. Star when, Trek, essentially. Essentially, yeah. And, you know... Is that sci-fi or is that something that you think is uh, realistic? No, it's not sci-fi. I think it's very realistic. We're getting closer to it. Certainly, the resolution for a lot of microbiological tests are getting better and certainly more rapid. I think there's a lot of things to be sorted out with the delivery, with the specificity, as opposed to the sensitivity of the tests. But this is the way we're moving towards. And this is probably the only way we'll improve how we manage patients is having more certainty with the diagnostics. My goal is just uh, to see more eMERGE docs uh, think about uh, alternative diagnosis when they think when they see something that's red and warm and recognize that it's not always cellulitis and hopefully incorporating more point of care ultrasound into the exam I think it can really help improve your diagnostic accuracy. So there you have it, a whirlwind tour of skin and soft tissue infections, another low glamour but high yield topic in emergency medicine. Our next main episode podcast will be on strategies on how best to learn EM and keep learning EM, you know, keeping up throughout your career. So to start applying some of the principles we'll be discussing on the upcoming podcast, after listening to this podcast, ask yourself, 
Have we validated how you already practice? Uh, have we made a few suggestions that will help refine your practice? Have we totally inverted your skin and soft tissue infection world? In any case, try writing down some of the practice-changing pearls and pitfalls you've learned from the podcasts and come back to them in a couple of weeks. Even better, read and reflect on the Just for Nuggets emails that'll review the key points from this podcast. Be on the lookout for the rapid reviews videos to help uh, consolidate your knowledge. Test your knowledge with the quiz that'll be at the bottom of the show notes a week or two after the podcast release. And next time you have a patient that you think has a soft tissue infection, pull out the EM Cases app that you've downloaded from the Apple App Store and go to this episode to help trigger your memory. You may not be as energized for cellulitis as you are for ED thoracotomy, but across the board, you can probably do a lot more good for a lot more patients by recognizing and treating these common infections the right way. Thanks, Dr. Bamel, and thanks, Dr. Morris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 